0: prophet isaiah says the people who walk in darkness will see a great light those who live in a dark land the light will shine on them you shall multiply the nation you shall increase their gladness they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil for a child will be born to us a son will be given to us And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David or over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, that you have gathered us in this hour to be reminded and challenged, to be provoked and encouraged. How we need these truths. How wonderful it is to know that you are our perfect Father. How we need today your wonderful counsel How we thank you that you are the prince of peace and we long for that in our world and while we do not have it in our world, we have it in our hearts for we have peace with God through Christ. How we need to be reminded that upon your shoulders, which are omnipotent and strong and faithful, upon them can rest the government of our own lives. Surely you will rule the nations, but you can rule us and guide us. And so we thank you and with joy worship you, our great God, today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, so far in the letter by James, we've discovered two kinds of faith. Dead faith and demonic faith. We define dead faith as faith without works and demonic faith as words without faith. To illustrate dead faith, you may remember James took us into the worship service and showed us the pious reaction of people in the assembly to some poor destitute believers without providing any help for them. They simply said, God bless you and I'll go get you something good to eat as if that blessing was tantamount to a good meal. James is making the point that faith which does not work is a faith that really doesn't work. He calls it what we've defined as dead faith. It's nothing more than words without meaning. Then James went on to describe demonic faith. This is a faith that has all the right answers on the Bible exam, but not the right heart. This is the person who knows the answers, but not the author. It's nothing more than getting the facts straight. And, of course, James shocked his Jewish world by telling them that the devil can quote the Shema. You believe that God is one? Great. The demons believe that, too, and they shudder. And it's shocking to us, as I'm sure it was to this first century audience, to discover that demons actually have faith. There's no such thing as an atheistic or agnostic demon. A demon never wonders if the Bible is uh, telling the truth. They have seen its prophecies uh, come true throughout the ages. And they know that the final prophecies, the final stages of, of human history recorded in the book of Revelation will come true as, as well. James' point is that it isn't enough to know about the truth and to get all the facts right. You must personally accept the truth it must become yours. A few weeks ago, I visited a man in an intensive care unit. His daughter and son in law are members of colonial, but he for years was a Christian scientist. Christian scientists deny the, the atonement of Christ on the cross for sin. They believe in a universal salvation they Say, there's no need for any mortal to ever fear the coming judgment. No such thing. Now, this man lay in the final stages of cancer, having courageously battled it for two years. His daughter and son in law were hoping and praying that we would be able to, to talk together. He was open to that, but before I got to their home, he was taken to the hospital, now in the last stages of cancer. They asked him if I could come and visit, and he agreed. I asked the nurse if I could come when everybody else was gone after hours and she was a believer and she said, we'll make that happen. And So I returned that night around 9 o'clock and we were uninterrupted for nearly an hour as I had the opportunity to deliver to him the gospel of Christ. We sensed the urgency of, of this hour. Little did we know that within six days that he was going to die. Nothing I said to him was new. He'd watched the lives of his kids. He'd heard the gospel before. But he had never personally trusted in Christ, believing that he was indeed the God-man whose cross work was sufficient for his sins. When I finished explaining the gospel to him, I asked him what he wanted to do about it. He said he wanted to think about it. I prayed for him and left but not before telling him to make sure he told his family if and when he decided to accept for himself the personal claims of Christ. Five days later, one day before he died, he informed his family that Jesus Christ now lived in his heart as his own personal Savior. And his funeral, held in our chapel, took place two days ago. Can you imagine the significance of that decision now for all of eternity? The difference between an eternity in hell and an eternity in heaven. You see, it's one thing to acknowledge the truth. It's another thing to accept the truth. It's one thing to say, I know that God exists. I know that Jesus is his son. I know that Jesus died on the cross. The demons believe that and they shudder. It's acknowledgement without acceptance. So, what about you, I wonder today? Do you have faith? Is it more than dead faith, just accurate words without any meaning? Is it demonic faith, the acknowledgement of the truth without personal acceptance? Who knows? But today may be your final opportunity to hear the gospel and receive it. This may be the day before you die. James is giving us a tour of three faiths, so to speak. James chapter 2 is where I invite your attention. Only one of these faiths is genuine. Only one is the real item. Now, I want you to follow this carefully. Dead faith affects only the mind, as James has described it. It it intellectually acknowledges the words, believes in the validity of the words, but that's it. Demonic faith affects the mind and the emotions. I mean, the demons have an emotional reaction to the truth of God. They shudder. They tremble now James is going to illustrate for us a third kind of faith, and it is dynamic faith. Dynamic faith affects the mind, the emotions, and it moves forward to affect the will. Let me illustrate it this way. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think is going to win the Super Bowl? That's a prophet. <laughs> Someone is going to win the Super Bowl. But you ruined my illustration. Okay, back to my question. <laughs> well, never mind that illustration. Okay, let me, let me give you a different one. <laughs> I love it. Suppose you have an incurable disease. And I tell you, there's a doctor in California who's given his a life to studying that disease, and he's found a cure. He's written a book, and, and I give you a copy of the book. You promise to read it. I see you a few months later, and I, and I ask you, what do you think? And you say, oh, man. Uh, that, that doctor's amazing. Well, did you read the book? Oh, I read it. My name is written all through that book. It, it, it's like he knew me inside and out. Do you believe that, that he has the cure? I certainly do. Well, when are you going to California? You know, I really don't like to fly. It makes me uncomfortable. What do you say I just read the book? See, genuine faith... And Jesus Christ goes beyond admission and acknowledgement into acceptance. And James, for the point of this context, is saying it will ultimately be seen in action. To illustrate this point of dynamic faith, which is what we'll call the third... He's going to take the life of someone that every Jew would immediately identify with and recognize. In fact, every one of us would, whether we're Jew or Gentile. It is Father Abraham. Look at verse 21 of James chapter 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works... And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, as you read that, immediately there's a tension that begins to build, isn't there? In fact, this is the portion of James' letter that was so irritating to Martin Luther, the reformer. He was so adamantly opposed to the Roman Catholic dogma of salvation by work, salvation you merit, salvation you earn. He was such a strong defender of salvation by grace alone through faith alone that he missed the point of James. In fact, he ended up calling the entire letter an epistle of straw. But on closer inspection, it becomes clear that James has something in mind. Let me recommend that you get out your pencil or pen and, and be prepared to write into the margin of your Bible two references that may help you as you go back later on. If you look back at James chapter 2 and verse 21, James writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar. In the margin of your Bible, write the text, Genesis 22, because that's the account of Abraham offering Isaac, preparing to offer him as a burnt offering. Now look back at what James says in verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Next to that verse, write. Genesis 15. And you can see immediately how James has reversed the order of two events that occurred to make a point. The Apostle Paul will use, in fact, this very same quote from Genesis 15 that Abraham believed. But he's going to use it to prove that that, that Abraham was justified by faith apart from works. Romans 4. Now, James comes along and uses the very same text. From Genesis chapter 15, to show that the justification is not by faith alone, but by works. So who's right? Do you have this tension? Is it, is it Paul? Or is it James? Do we take a vote? No, no need to take a vote, because they both happen to be right. They are both looking at the life of Abraham, this same text, but they're looking at it with two different perspectives. Let me explain. You need to keep in mind that there is such a thing as justification in the eyes of God. That is by faith. And the analogy of Scripture shows over and over again it is faith alone. There is also justification in the eyes of mankind. That is not by faith because they cannot see faith. That's an intangible, invisible element. They can only see works. So these are the two sides or sides of the coin called justification, faith and works. In fact there are two general meanings for the original word justified, dekaio. It appears often. One has to do with the legal declaration that you are righteous. Literally, you are right with God. This is the way Paul most often used the quote or the word, I should say. when he, I'll quote him from Romans 3.24. We are justified as a gift by God's grace. It's a gift. You are declared right with God and it must be a gift because none of us could ever earn it. None of us could ever be good enough to be declared by a holy God. You're right. You're righteous. It's a gift. Paul would write it this way in Romans 5 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the forensic legal pronouncement whereby the believer is declared right, righteous before God. He is literally acquitted by the divine judge in the divine courtroom of holiness. That's one side of justification in the court of God's opinion declared righteous there's another side and the other side of justification is vindication before men that is justification in the court of public opinion in God's court justification takes place in a moment in the transaction of salvation in the court of public opinion It takes place every moment throughout the day. Sometimes we succeed, not nearly as much as we'd like to. Often we fail. So depending on which side of the coin you happen to be emphasizing, you can either promote justification by faith or justification by works. Justification by faith is in the eyes of God. Justification by works is in the eyes of God. Of men. Now, here's something really interesting, okay? Assuming nothing else has been yet. Here's something. Both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle James illustrate their particular side of the coin with the same life, the life of Abraham. And they use the same verse from Genesis 15, which reads, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him, it was counted to him as Righteousness, But I want you to understand before we go any further that Paul uses the verse to prove the fact that Abraham was justified before he ever did anything. Genesis 15, declared righteous, takes place before Genesis 22, he offers Isaac. James will use the life of Abraham to prove the fact that what Abraham did actually revealed he belonged to God. Paul is emphasizing the root of, Of salvation, James is emphasizing the fruit of salvation. In fact, look at verse 22 again in James chapter 2. You see that faith was working with his works faith was working with. Gives, it's the word "sunerge." gives us the word synergy. There's a synergy between faith and works. And as a result of this synergy, verse 22, faith was perfected. That word perfected, again, is James' favorite word. You could translate it matured. Shown to be grown up. Did you notice how James began verse 22? He says, You see? Do you see? Look. Look at the life. Look at Abraham offering up Isaac. Look how his faith has grown up. That's his point. It has been 50 years of growth, by the way. It is arguably the greatest act of faith by any human being The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 tells us that Abraham first demonstrated faith in chapter 12. Hebrews 11 tells us when he left home, he left home by faith, verse 8. In verse 9 of Hebrews 11, he lived as a foreigner by faith. And then he offered up Isaac, verse 17, by faith. It's a progression of demonstration in the court of public opinion. But the definitive moment of belief is said to have been in Genesis 15, where Abraham rested everything upon the word of God. And he believed, literally, he believed God. We're not told if Abraham believed God immediately, if he went out and thought about it, if he prayed about it. We're only told that he believed in God, literally, in the God by faith. Now that doesn't mean from that point forward Abraham lived a perfectly faithful life. Just study his life. I mean, if he's earning it, if he's earning his salvation, we're in deep trouble with this man. He was faithless. He disobeyed God. He committed adultery as plans of his own. So so if he's declared righteous because he's earned it after that declaration of Genesis 15, we have failure. But that definitive moment of belief in which God declared him to be right is now going to be seen in his life sometimes as failure, sometimes successfully. It will be not a life of perfection but a life of progression. One author said that Abraham's life was really nothing more than a series of surrenders to God as God prepared him to make the ultimate surrender to God. Think about it. He was first told to surrender his father and his family and home and leave them. Have you ever had that test of faith? he was told to surrender the well-watered plains of Jordan to his nephew Lot. And he passed that test of faith. He was later told to surrender Hagar and Ishmael, that Ishmael would not be the son of the covenant promise. And then when God later came to Abraham, who is now more than 100 years old, it is a conversation That that, that fascinates me. Isaac has been born. Isaac is now in his 30s. And God comes to him in Genesis 22, which James is highlighting. And here's what God says. Abraham, take now your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac. I mean, how many times does he have to say, do you think Abraham was hard of hearing or or maybe a little slow? No, but he, he was stubborn. And so he's probably got these little thoughts in his mind and maybe there's a loophole in here, but listen again to what God says and and imagine with me how Abraham has every loophole closed. Abraham, present Lord, take now your son. Doesn't sound too good. I have two sons. No, take your only son. Okay, but Ishmael and Isaac are both technically the only son of their mother no take the one whom you love well i do love ishmael abraham take now your son your only son the one whom you love isaac end of conversation james will say you go and watch abraham on mount moriah and you tell me is this not the greatest vindication of a person's faith that you've ever seen Or heard of before watch him surrender his son to God God had promised Abraham a son this covenant son this promise when he was 75 years of age his wife Sarah 65 years of age life expectancy during this period of time from what we can tell was about a hundred and twenty years which means there's still a slight chance that Abraham and Sarah might have a child of their own Time passes, slim chances dwindle down to none. Ten years after the initial promise, God appears again, reminds Abraham of the promise and says to Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. Abraham retorts with some sarcasm, then why am I still waiting for a son? God told Abraham to go outside and look up at the sky And try to count the stars. You ever gone outside? I've read that you can see about a hundred stars on a clear night. But then on closer inspection, seven are airplanes and three are satellites, right? Not Abraham. It's clear. It's dry. It's dark. And God says, your seed will outnumber them. And then what happens? Nothing For 14 years. Nothing. How would you be doing by now? I don't know about you, but but I'd have a little trouble. Still waiting. still waiting for the promise. The prospects seem impossible. that's why Abraham. Gets tired of waiting and he institutes plan B. It's known as Project Hagar who delivers Ishmael. God rejects him as the covenant seed. This was Abraham's lack of faith, not act of faith. Ishmael will grow up resentful. He'll fulfill the prophecy of God's words to Hagar that Ishmael's hand will be against everyone. Genesis 16, 12. Ishmael will become the father of the Arab nation, a constant thorn in the side of Isaac's descendants, the Jewish people, to this very day. And by the way, just as a sidebar here, the battle between Isaac's descendants and Ishmael's descendants have not let up and will not let up until the coming kingdom of Christ. You can read about it in the news every day. But when all of the prospects... For God's promise to Abraham seem now impossible. In fact, Abraham's just blown out a hundred candles on his birthday cake. And Sarah's blown out 90. The shocking news comes that she's expecting, and nine months later they have a newborn son, Isaac. He grows up. For 30 years, Abraham is experiencing prosperity. He's thinking, is God good or what? What? He's probably thinking, my tests of faith are over. Whew, I made it. I'm good to go. You know, I'm there. Already declared right before God. There's no more stuff out there for the court of public opinion. I've I put in my dues. Then God comes along and says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, the one you love, and make him a burnt offering to me. And Abraham discovers what maybe you've discovered in your own life, that your greatest test of faith is the next one. Buried in this story is the wonderful type of Christ throughout this entire ordeal. Isaac, the only son, is offered by his father. God offers his unique son, Isaac carries the wood up the hill for the sacrifice. Christ, for time, carries the crossbeam of wood up the hill. Isaac willingly mounts the altar. Christ willingly gives himself as our sacrifice. Philippians 2.8 As Abraham raises the knife to take his son's life believing we're told in hebrews that god's going to have to do something evidently it's going to be a resurrection because this is the covenant son and from him is going to come this race so uh, i assume that's what god will do and we'll come back later together but he's still going through the ordeal this painful ordeal he raises his knife to take his son's life an angel stops him and says look over there there's a ram caught in the thicket, quietest ram in the history of the human population, <laughs> in the world. He sacrifices the ram, but God had promised a lamb. Before that chapter ends, in Genesis 22, Abraham will say, "On the mountain of the Lord, on this mount, this ridge, Moriah, it will be provided." And on that same ridge of hills, we can't know for sure where, centuries later, the Lamb of God will be offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, fulfilling the prophecy of Abraham and the type that Isaac had served. But because we know all that, we miss what James is saying is the demonstration, the vindication of God justification before man. So let's not be too hasty. Jay Herndon was a missionary in a poor mining village in Ireland. He wrote about an incident several years ago that I read. One cold evening, the company bus filled with the men of the village after a long day at work was returning down the mountain as they wound their way around the road was slick with ice on the dark winter evening, and the bus driver, an experienced man, had to navigate carefully. Herndon wrote, the road was extremely narrow. To the left of the bus were the sharp rocks of the mountainside. To the right was a sheer cliff that plunged hundreds of feet below. Suddenly, just a few yards ahead of the bus, the men made out the figure of a little boy sitting in the middle of the road playing with one of his toys as back to the bus, The driver had only a split second to make a decision. To swerve or stop would create skidding. Perhaps all the lives of these men and fathers would be lost. To continue forward meant the certain death of the boy who was oblivious to the oncoming bus. Jay Herndon wrote that after the bus stopped a few hundred feet beyond the crumpled form of the boy... The driver of the bus was the first one off. He ran back and picked up the lifeless form of his own son. He buried his head in the boy's coat. And he wept. See, so we have the idea that Abraham has his hands in the pockets of his gown and he's whistling as he walks up Mariah's Ridge. We have the idea that, well, you know, I'm a friend of God and something better instead of would certainly be in store. And because of that and because we know how it turned out, we overlook the pain of now what had been 50 years of waiting and the thought of taking your own son's life. What is your test of faith? Could it be anything greater than this one? We overlook it because that's so much like us. We, we tend to minimize the challenges and, and tests of faith in the lives of others, and we magnify our own. See, James isn't bringing up Abraham so he can just rehearse Old Testament history and prove he'd stayed awake in synagogue school. He isn't... He isn't using Abraham's decision of faith as, 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 isn't that wonderful? No, he's using it as an example for us. He's effectively saying, the example of Abraham, which accepted the tests of God, imperfectly at times, completely at other times, is to be our example of living, dynamic faith. This is more than Old Testament history. And for Abraham, it was the culmination of 50 years of testing and growing and maturing that now out there in the court of public opinion provides this remarkable event which becomes, in James' mind, proof of faith. This is the vindication of justification. This is the same thing Jesus Christ, by the way, would say. Let your light so shine before men. Not in your garage. Not in your living room. Not in here. Anybody can do that and come off looking pretty good. Before men. That they may see your good what? Works. Not how many times you come to church, not how many verses you can say, not how many times you've been through the Bible. Not, they don't care. They don't care if you were here today. That means nothing to them. They want to know how we demonstrate our faith out there. You see, we have the idea that, that we're demonstrating lives of faith by what we have. Look at what I have. Isn't this proof of my faith? James is saying, no, 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 you got it backwards. The demonstration of faith is seen by how you act when there is something you lose. Something you do not have. Some answer God does not provide. Some test. Some surrender. I wonder, what has God asked you to surrender What has he asked you to place on the altar of your life? And effectively said, that will not be fulfilled. What hard thing has he asked of you? What has he asked you to put on the altar of surrender? Dead faith would say, the altar of surrender to Christ is something every Maturing Christian should do, but not do it. Dead faith would never participate in what it acknowledges. Demonic faith would say, the altar of surrender to Christ exists, it's real, and there are many who live for Christ, but they will never surrender. In their holy state, they cannot Dynamic faith would say the altar of surrender to Christ in what he is asking of me today, it is real. And every believer who desires to mature in their faith would submit to that imperfectly at times, completely at other times. And by the way, I am willing, Lord, to sign on. I will vindicate out there in the court of public opinion my testimony that I really do belong to a living God and He belongs to me. John Calvin wrote it this way, faith alone justifies but the faith that justifies, is never alone. That's the point of James, chapter 2. He's saying take your faith outside. Dynamic faith is the demonstration of faith through life. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? Let's put a period here. I have no idea in the scheme of eternal things, how significant today is in your life. This could literally be your last opportunity to hear and personally receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you done that? On whom are you resting? In whom are you trusting? I personally believe and it is a prayer on my heart that I will preach to hundreds of people today who have dead faith. People who have demonic faith. Who can check all the boxes. Who know the truth. But have never said to Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Isaac, In your sacrifice, I place my faith. I receive you as my living Lord and Savior. If that's you, I'm so glad you're here. You're an answer to prayer. But settle it. We want you to settle it. Because what you settle in your life will last forever. Maybe you're here as a believer and you know that God has placed on the altar of your life a call to surrender. And it is demanding. It is perhaps even tiring. It is at times a great struggle as Abraham. You can imagine him waiting 14 years. You can imagine him growing for 50 years. Would you right now with fresh commitment say to the Lord would you help me Lord demonstrate in the court of public opinion my faith thank you that when I am faithless you are faithful thank you that this does not earn for me my standing as justified help me as I seek to demonstrate my standing by surrendering to Christ. Father, we thank you. And as believers, we rejoice today in your grace and your love. We thank you for the conviction of your spirit that brings edification. We understand edification to not necessarily be feeling better. We wouldn't necessarily say that, but it is living better. So would you cause that to take place? Thank you for the privilege of hearing little children sing, knowing you're hearing the gospel on this campus today. All the way up through. Choirs and this auditorium singing together. Thank you for the privilege of praying together. Thank you for the privilege of studying together. And the fellowship that occurs in between rows and in the aisles. Thank you for the sweetness of the assembly. Cause it now to burrow its way a little deeper into our hearts and character so that we take this out there so that we do indeed glorify you for you are indeed worthy of our worship.